love, love, love coming to worship with the people of God here. And uh, we so appreciate you. So thank you very much. Um, I just wanted to say really quick, we need to say a big old happy birthday to Mr. John Magpente, who had his birthday this past Friday. Come on, can you give it up for Johnny? <laughs> and I'm so thankful again for, I know, for all of the uh, exciting uh, things that are happening uh, through the church. Uh, Earl, thank you again uh, so much. Earl is a bomb, man. I'm telling you, if you, <laughs> if you come out and participate in Young Life, you are going to have a good time. It's also a workout because some of those games <laughs> that we do, we go down and have to pick each other up and stuff. So if you've been looking to um, get a good workout and be spiritual at the same time, Young Life is for you. <laughs> okay? So it is great. And um, let me also tell you, uh, we have uh, several people who have participated in the past. If you want more information about it, please talk to some of our uh, people. Earl can give you more information. So... Um, today we are going to give you a little bit more um, in the series that we've been doing uh, called Rebuilding Our Altars, Rebuilding Our Altars. And what we've been talking about after the Easter season is just, we started off last week with a, an introduction to the cycles of our life in God and the cycles of our uh, development in God. And though all of us at uh, some point um, hopefully are starting a walk with Jesus that's going to be passionate, that's going to be unadulterated, that's going to be pure and uh, fervent throughout our lifetime, there are times that there are cycles that we go through just like the Israelites of uh, the Bible and the Old Testament where there ebbs and flows, where we pursue him ardently and passionately and then life hits us, right? Life hits us and then the zeal that we had at first can be diminished and dissipate to a certain extent. And the good news is, is that when we read the scripture, we see that um, even the scripture exhorts us that when we are faithless, God remains faithful. Even when we are faithless, faithless, God remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. And so in the midst of all of our challenges, in the midst of all of our pressing into God, we see that God gave us promises, as we talked about last week, that help us when the altars of worship in our hearts are broken down and we diminish in our fervency or our heart for God. God gives us promises that as we return to him, he'll restore us. As we return to him, he'll build us up again and bring us into the life of promise that he has for us. And so Last week was an introduction, and it was meant to be an introduction because we're going to be going, in ref going through and referencing the book of Ezra in the Bible. And we didn't even touch Ezra last week, but it's good because we are setting a course for understanding the Bible as a whole. And whenever you read your Bible, what we want you to do is be, to be able to understand it, not just verse by verse, as if it's an isolated or sort of um, a disconnected or dis, um, dis, uh, disassociated set of scripture, but instead to read it as a whole in its context. And so what we did last week is we started to talk about the history of the Israelites and the history of the people of God as they were receiving the promises of God and coming into his promise and then backsliding and then coming back to God based on his promise. And so we're going to uh, pick that up again today. Uh, but to do so, we're going to actually talk about it in four ways. If you're taking notes, don't worry. This is, uh, again, as Cole talked about, going to be on a podcast so you can go back to it later because the way we're breaking it up today is a bit of a mouthful, but it'll hopefully give you uh, sort of a structure to follow how we're speaking about the scripture today. 
And as we look at the book of Ezra, we're going to talk about uh, things today in terms of rebuilding our altars by first understanding a history of the breakdown and rebuilding of the altars for worship throughout the Bible. Understanding a history of the breakdown and the rebuilding of the altars throughout the Bible. Then secondly, what we're going to do is we're going to talk about God's provision for rebuilding altars in our lives. God's provision. We referenced that last week, only slightly touched on it, but we're going to go a little bit more in depth of, about God's provision for rebuilding altars in our lives. Then we're going to talk about why your mentality towards building is important in worship. And then finally, we're going to end with the filter through which all of our buildings should come. The filter through which all of our buildings should come. So let's pray, and then we'll go into the Bible today. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that you've given it to us to sanctify us. Jesus, even when you prayed to the Father, you said, Lord, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. And so, God, we're praying that today as we read your word, that you would set us apart to yourself today. That regardless of where the altars in our hearts are, whether they're strong and thriving or broken down and need to be rebuilt, God, that you would help bring us to a place where we come back and meet you in a fresh way and rebuild that which is for your fame, praise, and glory. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so let's begin with the scripture today. We're going to start in Ezra chapter 1. Ezra chapter 1, going through verse 11. If you have a Bible, please open it to that today. If you don't have a Bible, it's there for you on the screen. It says this. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, which is otherwise known as modern-day Iran, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of this place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred up to go rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. And all who were about them aided them with vessels of silver, with gold, with goods, with beasts, and with costly wares, besides all that was freely offered. Cyrus the king also brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed in the house of his gods. Cyrus, king of Persia, brought these out in the charge of Mithridath, the treasurer, who counted them out to Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. And this was the number of them, 30 basins of gold, 1,000 basins of silver, 29 censers, 30 bowls of gold, 410 bowls of silver, and 1,000 other vessels. All the vessels of gold and of silver were 5,400. 
All these did Sheshbazar bring up when the exiles were brought up from Babylonia to Jerusalem. So whenever we look at the scripture, the first thing that we need to do is we need to get a picture of how to look at the scripture through the eyes of Christ. Because we know that all of the Old Testament, and again, even if you are just starting on this journey and haven't really picked up the Bible yet to read it and to dive into it, or even if you have and you've been reading it faithfully for years, it's important that we as a people learn to study it in its proper context. And whenever we're looking at it in its proper context, as we referenced last week, we need to understand the history, first of all, of the breakdown and rebuilding of the altars of worship throughout the Bible. And where we ended last week was Jeremiah 29, where God had sent the Israelites into exile in Babylon. And for 70 years, because of their sin, they were in exile and they were paying the price for their perpetual disobedience to God. And though God loved them, he was faithful to discipline them, just as he's faithful today to discipline us when we go astray. And after the 70 years, he made a promise and said, I'm going to bring you back into this land. And that's the good news about God is that God, again, as we already mentioned, even though when we're faithless, he remains faithful and he watches over the promises that he's made his people. And so after the 70 years of even being in discipline in Babylon and increasing in that place, what we get to is Ezra. And in Ezra, we're in a historic context here. He's saying after the 70 years that Jeremiah prophesied about, that we talked about last week in Jeremiah 29, then there was another king. We know that in history, kings come and kings go. Presidents come and presidents go, right? But God remains the same. And there's this new king named Cyrus in Persia, which is known as modern-day Iran, and God raises this pagan king up to rebuild and restore the altars that were broken down in Jerusalem where the Israelites were taken captive. But whenever you look at the Bible, I want to sort of just give you a picture of the history that's taking place here so that as you're going through the historic books in the Old Testament prophets, you see how it's interwoven you see how it's one history. You're able to see how they're all connected and that they all make sense to the one message of God's redeeming work ultimately fulfilled in Christ. So when you look, first of all, at Jeremiah that we referenced last week who was prophesying, Jeremiah ministered from about 627 B.C. after the fall of Jerusalem until after the fall of Jerusalem in about 586 B.C., And if you remember anything from your schooling and your history, we know that B.C., it goes from the larger numbers to the smaller numbers, right? And then A.D., it goes from the smaller numbers to the larger numbers, okay? So just just practically speaking, you're like, why is he going backwards? Well, that's how history works. Okay, so like, all right, so Jeremiah, Jeremiah was going through it during that period. He was prophesying during that time. So Jeremiah's ministry, if you look at the chapters in Jeremiah, he had a ministry of about 50 years, right? He had a ministry of about 50 years prophesying, calling the people back to the kingdom of God, calling people back to the law of God over a 50-year time span. And then that included his um, unfortunate exile with the people of Israel into Babylon where he prophesied about. But then you also can flip through the Bible and get to a place or a book of the Bible called Daniel. How many of you have referenced Daniel before, right? 
Daniel, all of a sudden, was part of this ongoing story. And Daniel, along with people like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, how many people remember their story in the Bible, right? In the fiery furnace or Daniel in the lion's den. This is all part of that story of exile. And Daniel took place in Babylon from about around 605 BC when Daniel participated in his teens in the first Babylonian deportation. Okay? So there were waves of deportations of the Israelites leaving Jerusalem, leaving Israel and going into Babylon. And Daniel was part of this first wave of deportation in his teens. And the book of Daniel took place between that 605 B.C. to about 536 B.C., around the date of his last prophetic writing when he would have been in his 80s. So Daniel even had a long ministry himself, right? And over and over again, he was prophesying, calling the people of God to the promises that God would have for them when they made their return to rebuild the altars in Jerusalem. Now, when we get to Ezra, we see that he's starting to reference that return after the 70 years. And there were three waves of exiles returning to Israel, coming back to the um, land of Israel, coming back to the place where they would rebuild worship in the land of Israel. And the first wave, the first wave took place in about 536 B.C., In about 536 B.C., God raised up two men especially. One was named Zerubbabel, and he was the governor of Israel when Israel returned to Jerusalem. And another man was named Yeshua, or he was named otherwise known as Joshua, who was going to be a priest in Israel during the time when the exiles came back. And around 536 B.C., these were the people that Cyrus was sending back, according to Ezra 1, back into the land to rebuild Jerusalem with worship and glory given to the God of heaven and earth. But it wasn't just them that took place. Now, some of you might have flipped through your Bible and gone through actually books of the Bible called Haggai and Zechariah. How many people have ever crossed those places before? Haggai and Zechariah, okay? Haggai and Zechariah were contemporaries of these people. So these weren't random disconnected events, but whenever they made efforts to rebuild the place of alt- um, the altars of worship in Israel and in Jerusalem. There was opposition that took place. And if ever you've tried to get back on track after going astray in your worship of God, how many people know that the devil's not going to applaud that? He's not going to be like, great, where have you been? I've missed you worshiping the king of heaven and earth. How many people know he's not going to do that? But he's going to send opposition of all sorts, whether it be demonic opposition or it be opposition that occurs relationally or opposition that just occurs in the circumstances of your life to weigh you down. And so even in that context, God raised up prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, who in the midst of the opposition to rebuilding the altars of worship were there to encourage the people, keep going. Don't give up. It's worth it. Though you're facing circumstantial opposition to rebuilding the worship and the altars that God's going to get glory from, God is with you. And if you give, make him, put him first in your life, he will back you up. And not only will he back you up, everything else that you're concerned about, everything that you're trying to put your hands to, the affairs of life, taking care of your family, taking care of your income, taking care of your posterity, all these things, he says he will be concerned about if you build his kingdom first. 
And does that not sound familiar to what Jesus said when he showed up on the scene? When Jesus showed up on the scene, he said this, don't worry about your life, what you're going to eat and what you're going to drink or what you're going to wear. Because your heavenly father knows you have need of these things. But seek first, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Jesus was only reiterating the things that the prophets in the midst of the rebuilding of the altars that they were speaking over and over again to the Israelites as they were trying to reestablish worship in the land of Israel. So you see Zechariah and Haggai doing these things. But even after that, you see um, a woman named Esther. How many people have ever been encouraged by the book of Esther before? Esther was part of those people who were left in the the exilic period in Persia. There were waves of people that would come back, but some of the Israelites stayed. Meaning that there were some who were zealous to start rebuilding worship in the house of God, but there were others who were slow to get going. And is that not true of the church? There are some, there are always some who are firebrands who are sort of like, Woo! God speaks, I'm ready to move! Right? Come on, everybody! And like you start running, 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 and then you look back and nobody's with you. And then you're like, okay, that's all right. That's all right. I was part of the first exilic return to Jerusalem. But that's okay. God's still moving amongst his people who are still in exile, right? And that's what he was doing in the book of Esther. Esther was back there in Persia, and she eventually got raised up as a queen, right, to save the Israelites who were left back into exile. And here's, here's the truth of the matter. Here's the truth of the matter. One of the lessons from the book of Esther is that if you remain in the place of exile with your altars broken down where you don't need to be, eventually your life in God will be threatened. And it's only through God raising up by his mercy someone like Esther that can actually preserve your life. And that's what the lesson of Esther is. God's like, let's get moving. Let's get moving back to the land that I have for you, back to the place of worship. Esther was queen in Persia around 487 B.C., 30 years prior to Ezra's, who the book is named after, that we're reading out of, Ezra's efforts to return the law to Jerusalem. She was amongst those who chose not to be a part of the first return to Jerusalem. But in between the first exile and the second exile, there existed about 79 years. 79 years in between the first exile's returning and then the second wave of exiles returning. Meaning, people of God, if you are trying to reach out to others and you see them not coming when you want them to, here's a good word for you. Be patient. (laughs) Be patient and have some Holy Spirit fruit in your life, which patience literally means long-suffering. Long-suffering with family members. Long-suffering with friends. Long-suffering with co-workers who God's trying to draw to himself to a place of worship and you're ready in that first exilic return to get there and be with them. But it took 79 years for the next group to get going. 79 years. That's somebody's whole lifetime. I fully anticipate that though I'm believing for family members and friends to come to the Lord, I'm going to be in an old man's rocking chair one day still believing for some family members and friends to come. And I'll feel that heart coming, going out. I'll be like pounding the chest. I'll be like, but the Lord. (laughs) Okay? Until my dying day, I'm going to be reaching out, believing in those 79 years, somebody's going to come back. 
Somebody, family members, friends, they're coming if we don't give up. And the exilic return of uh, the group number two occurred in 457 B.C. And their leader was Ezra at that time. Ezra, whom the book was written about, or his name was ascribed to the book that we're studying. And he was ascribed, commissioned by another king after Cyrus, named King Artaxerxes, to teach the Mosaic law to the people in Israel after worship was reestablished. And then finally, 13 years after Ezra returned, the final group finally got going. And they're like, hey, I guess the altars are rebuilt. <laughs> hey, I guess, I guess worship's happening again. I, I guess they're being blessed again. Why not go back? You guys want to go? <laughs> and then finally, a man named Nehemiah. If you've ever heard of the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah went back in the last exilic group around 444 B.C., and Nehemiah was sent not to restore the altars for worship, but he was sent to rebuild the walls around Jerusalem so that once there was worship established, there was once again a defense to all the worship that was taking place. It's not enough to rebuild altars of worship in your heart. You've got to have walls of defense up. Amen? for all of your love for God. There are certain things that you need to do to protect your love for God, to protect your devotion to God, to protect your separation and your being set apart to him. That's what they did. So that's a brief history of what you're looking at when you flip through the pages of scripture. It was all about them restoring the altars of worship to God that were originally established in that place. You need to understand that because this is a real history. This is a real life, and it gives us instruction for today. So what is in the midst of this entire history? If that's a history of God, um, of the altars being broken down and then being reestablished in our life, what is God's provision for rebuilding our altars? Well, we find it again in Ezra chapter 1. Let's read it once again. It says, Thus Cyrus King of Persia said, the Lord, the God of heaven has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he has charged me to build him a house, a house, a house. I'm not stuck on my thoughts, but a house in Jerusalem, a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. And then he says, whoever, whoever is among you of all his people, meaning everybody's called to this. Whoever's an Israelite, he's saying, go do this. Whoever's called by the name of Jesus today, we're saying you're called to rebuild the altars of worship in your life and to build your life on the idea and the theme of loving God through worship. He said, go to the house that's in Jerusalem, in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides free will offerings for those who got that got for the God who's in Jerusalem. So what is God's provision for you as you go? We know that God says, hey, listen, if your altars of worship have been broken down, you need my help to rebuild them. How many people know that's the truth? You need God's grace to rebuild that zeal that was once there. And that's what's powerful about God in his faithfulness. Do you know that even in uh, Psalm uh, Psalm 18, he says, you, O God, keep my lamp burning. He's the God who keeps the fire for him burning in my heart. And so if you feel that it's diminishing in your heart, you can cry out to a God who will fan the flame and burn in you once again in a way that you can't on your own. 
So meaning that if you feel like your zeal for God is diminishing, you need to cry out to God who birthed the flame in you in the first place and ask him to reignite it. Ask him to reignite the flame in you to reestablish this altar of worship. And he says, I'm going to provide provision for you as you go back to rebuild worship or go back to rebuild the altars. And it's going to um, be, uh, take place in three ways. Number one, you have a place to worship. You have a place to worship. So many people are trying to worship God independently in our generation. They're spiritual, but they don't like the institution of church. How many people have heard that before? Well, let me tell you something. God loves his church. God loves his house. With all of its flaws and with all of its imperfections, he calls the church his bride. And let me tell you something. When you get married, you will love your spouse, but you will see their imperfections. How many people could say amen to that? Okay, and the rest of you are not married. All right, and so, all right, you will, okay, but how many people know you will love your bride, you will love your groom in the midst of their imperfections? And when God says, I'm bring, rebuilding a, an altar of worship in your heart, he doesn't do it without giving you a place to worship. For the Israelites, it was Jerusalem. In our modern context, everybody needs a local church. Everybody, wherever you find yourself, you need to get up on a Sunday morning, wipe the gunk out of your eyes. And I know I'm talking to some people on podcasts now because you're here. But the point is, it's like, listen, wipe the gunk out of your eyes and say, you know what? If I can get up at 6 o'clock in the morning to make some money, I can get up at 8 in the morning to get to a 10 o'clock service. To be built up in my most holy faith and worship the king of heaven. Because I know that after I do that, I'm going to have greater strength to go into my day. Greater strength and anointing to go into my week and pastor my family and my friends and my co-workers. What I need is in the house of the Lord. And he's saying, I'm giving you first a place to worship. For the Israelites, it was Jerusalem. For everybody who lives today under the name of Jesus, it is a local church. And I love that we're here together worshiping at Second City. But how many people know some people aren't going to be here forever? Meaning Chicago. And we move and we transplant. Some of you are getting ready to graduate and go on to your next venture or next season in life. Well, let me tell you, I love that you love Second City, but you need to find a church where you go next. And be just as involved there as you were here. He gives you a place. Number two, he gives you resources that you dedicate to him as an expression of obedient worship. He said, talk to the people in that place. Ask for gold and silver and basins and all of the things that were previously part of the worship in Jerusalem that Nebuchadnezzar took and put in the place of idolatrous worship. He said, what was previously dedicated to idolatrous living, you need to take back and submit to God. When you used to use all the resources that God entrusted to you only for your pleasure, only for your future, only for the things that were concerning you, he said, you need to submit them and worship to me. He said, part of worship is I entrust you with resources and I give you the ability to honor me and build my kingdom with what I entrust to you. 
And until you're broken of that idolatry, the idols in your heart will be rising up and you, you will not have room for the altars of worship that he wants to build there. He said you cannot serve two masters. You cannot. You cannot. You'll either love one and hate the other or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. You have got to learn to worship him through the giving of what he's entrusted to you. His provision is for worship, not just for your own treasure chest. And then number three, he gives you a people with whom to build the altar of worship. He gives you a people with whom to build the altar of worship. He never calls you to do it alone. When Cyrus spoke, he said, all of you people to whom, who belong to the God of heaven, right? He says, yes, you Zerubbabel, yes, you Yeshua, but all you who are going to follow them too, you go together. And if you're trying to worship God independently, you will fail. If you begin to link arms with the people of God who are in the New Testament called the body of Christ, then you will have the daily encouragement that you need to press forward in worship to him. There is no doing it on your own. He says, my provision is my people. I give you a people to return to Jerusalem with. I give you a people to rebuild those altars with. And you need to open yourself up. So many of you have um, uh, actually tasted and seen God's goodness in the midst of community groups. How many people can say amen to that? And it's like you are opening your life to people. It's what the Bible calls fellowship, which literally means a shared life with other people. And you're able to fulfill the exhortation of Hebrews where he says, encourage one another daily, as long as it's called today, so that no one might be hardened by sin's deceitfulness which means that there's something and something coming for you every day to discourage you. How many people have experienced that before? I think that's probably, if I were to be honest, probably the number one thing that I have to come overcome each day is just these voices of discouragement. Anybody with me? It's just sort of like, man, I, I, I just got to press past it. I'm like, God, let me hear your voice. And that's why I've got to open my Bible every day. That's why I've got to get Cole on the phone almost every day, right? Because it's like, listen, how can we do this alone? You're not meant to. He says, do it with people who can daily encourage you just as you daily receive discouragement to press past the things that are opposing the rebuilding of the altars in your life. It's God's provision for you. And when you do so, you will succeed. Isn't that good news? you will succeed. God wants you to succeed. Hey, isn't that good news? God wants you to succeed in your marriage. God wants you to succeed in your relationships. God wants you to succeed in your career path. God wants you to succeed in your child rearing. God wants you to succeed in all that you put your hands to because it's part of his covenant. He said that everything you put your hands to will be blessed as you obey me. But we've got to obey him. And it's why, going on to the next part, why your mentality towards building is important 
in worship. God in his nature, this is something that's come up over and over again throughout the past several weeks in talking with people. We've got to understand that God in his nature is a wise master builder. God in his nature is a wise master builder. If you're going to rebuild altars of worship in your life, it doesn't happen arbitrarily. It doesn't happen by chance. It happens intentionally. And God is intentional in everything that he does. And he's a wise master builder as he builds people's lives and a people that are going to give him honor and glory. And that means this, that in whatever you're doing, in, let me specify this, in every season of your life, every season of life, because you go through different seasons of life with different responsibilities, but in every season of your life, you want to ask yourself the question, what am I building with my time, my resources, and my talents for the kingdom of God? Because what God's given me is for worship. What God's given me is for worship, and God wants to use my time, my talents, my treasure to build something for the kingdom. What that means very practically is no matter where you are in life, you need to have a builder's mentality. Zig Ziglar, many of you have heard of him as a motivational speaker, but he's actually, he actually found Christ later in life. And he said this, regardless of your lot in life, build something beautiful on it. Regardless of where you find yourself, build something beautiful on it. In your singleness, many of you are single in here waiting for the one. And a man named Craig Rochelle said this, you can't build a foundation of sin now for a life of purity later meaning when you're single in that season of your life. You need to be pure. If you hope to have fidelity in your marriage one day, you need to be pure in your singleness now. You need to be self-controlled now. Don't think that you could lack self-control in your singleness and think that it's all of a sudden going to get better whenever you say, I do. He said, build a life of purity now that you hope to be blessed by later. Or how about in your marriage? How about in your marriage? A man named Neil Clark Warren said this, He's a Christian psychologist and a theologian. He said this, the greatness of marriage is correlated with the size and passion of the dream two loves have of their life together. The greatness of marriage is correlated with the size and the passion of the dream that two loves have pursuing one another, to get pursuing that dream together, meaning that so many people cul-de-sac with one another, thinking that if I just find the one, I'll find happiness and peace and bliss, and they find that eventually they're just ingrown, and they find out that they're irritated with one another and just at each other's throats all the time because they're not living for anything besides or beyond themselves. But God gives you something even as a couple to build for the kingdom of God. In marriage, he gives you and entrusts something for worship that he says, build this for the kingdom of God, and your marriage, in fact, will be great. And uh, finally, no matter what you do, meaning no matter what profession you're in, Timothy Keller said this in his book, Every Good Endeavor. (laughs) He said this, he said, a job is a vocation only if someone else calls you to do it for them rather than for yourself. Vocation literally meant calling. How many of you want to get out of the rat race of just going through the mundanity of work day after day after day saying, what is the point? 
Well, God wants to call you to something in your vocation. And this is what Timothy Keller is talking about. A job is a vocation only if someone else calls you to do it for them, meaning God, rather than for yourself. And so our work can be a calling only if it is reimagined as a mission of service to something beyond merely our own interests. Thinking of work mainly as a means of self-fulfillment and self-realization slowly crushes a person. God's saying, build something greater. Build something for worship. Build something for the kingdom. And finally, God put his period on it in Proverbs 29, 18, where he said this, where there is no prophetic revelation or prophetic vision, the people cast off restraint. Why do the altars break down? Because we don't see what God sees. We're not building what God's building. We're not pursuing what God said to pursue. And he says, whenever there's a lack of prophetic, meaning speaking on behalf of God, where there's a lack of prophetic vision, the people cast off restraint. But blessed is he who keeps the law. How are they to be able to keep the law? They're to do it when they have an understanding of what their life, their times, their talents, their treasure are meant for in worship. And God wants to give that to us each and every day. This is how we come into a place of rebuilding the altars that God has for us. And finally, it's understanding that it's the filter of Christ through which we need to build the, rebuild these altars. It's a, it's a familiar scripture. It's one that we've come to many times over. But it's 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 5. And this is where we're going to end for today as we continue our progression. He said, go and rebuild these altars. But with what do I need to build it? What needs to be my filter? What needs to be my litmus test for what I'm doing and whether or not it's actually pleasing God and impacting his kingdom? Well, Paul answered that in Corinthians when he was talking to the nascent church, and he said this, What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. He said, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. Because this, he says, we are... God's fellow workers. If you're going to be rebuilding an altar of worship in your life, you need to assume that identity. I'm God's fellow worker. Do you see yourself that way? Are you God's fellow worker in all that he's entrusted to you? You are God's field, God's building, talking to the church. According to the grace of God given me, like a skilled master builder, just like his God. He said, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Everything that I do, I need to look at through the lens of Jesus Christ. Is this building something for his name, his fame, his glory? Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, think of the three pigs. He says, each one work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. 
If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. And Lord knows that's how many people are living, right? Living for themselves. Not, it's not a matter of salvation. They're saved people. They'll be saved because of the blood of the Lamb. But as far as what's being built in their life, it's not being built on Christ. It's not being built for Christ. And therefore, it's meaningless at the end of the day. Meaningless, meaningless. All what Solomon said is meaningless except obeying God and fearing him and building altars of worship for him. So what our appeal is, is that as we're going into a series on rebuilding the altars of worship, we want to remember not just the history of the altars being torn down and rebuilt in Israel. We don't want to just think about we don't want to just think about God's provision for rebuilding the altars in our lives. We want to also understand the filter through which we need to make all of these decisions. And one practical way that you can do it is through something we're going to call, thank everybody, everybody thank Jennifer Lopez for this. It's going to be called the Purple Book Challenge or the Discipleship Challenge. We were at our community group and she popped up with this great idea. I said, yes! Yes. This is the purple book. How many people have seen this before? You may not be able to see this, but this is actually a newer version in Spanish. That's right. We have it in English and also in Spanish. So as you are looking to rebuild your altars in God, we're going to challenge you to also rebuild your life on the word of God. And if you have not done the purple book, we're asking you to go and put your name on a list and we will order one for you. We will order one for you and this will be a tool for you rebuilding your altars before God. If you say, I've already done this and I already know what I know in here, then part of the purple book challenge is going to be fulfilling the mandate to go and make disciples that as Jesus has entrusted his word to you, that you learned how to articulate it to others so that if others are stuck back in the exile, you can say to them, come on, let's go. And when they say why, you can say, hold on, <laughs> chapter three, right? Which gives you the word of God and how to apply it in your life. We'll talk more about this over the next several weeks, but let's rebuild our altars before God. Amen? Amen? God has charged us with this, and we are going to be a people who exemplify unadulterated worship before him in Jesus' mighty name. His cross is worthy of it. Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection provided for your forgiveness of sins and also your redemption. Now let's come back to the cross, be washed clean, and in his resurrection power, live for him in a wholehearted way. Amen? All right, worship team, come on back.